Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk downs. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumors. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Appreciate you listening. Uh, thrilled, thrilled, thrilled about uh, the guests that we're about to have on right now on the show. Kevin O'Neill, uh, longtime NBA coach, longtime college coach. He's a guy that has been a savior of programs at the college level um, and has done amazing work at the NBA level. He's been an assistant, a head coach there. Excellent recruiter, one of the best minds in basketball, hardworking, and now an incredibly candid analyst. So without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome Kevin O'Neill to the Great Point Podcast. KO, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Awesome. I appreciate it. Um, So much I want to get to. I, I obviously, we've got some history. We've worked together, but there's a lot that I don't know about you and stuff that I've always been interested in. So I wanted to hit on a lot of that. Um, just to take people through a little bit of your background, you grew up in New York, played college basketball in Canada, and then started out as a, as a high school coach, correct? I did. I was a high school coach and a uh, sixth grade teacher at Hammond High School in Hammond, New York. How were you as a sixth grade teacher? You know, it was, it was really interesting, Adam. We didn't, it was such a small school. I had all the sixth graders all day, every day. So I taught them every subject. And uh, it was really an enjoyable experience, but it was really difficult and hard because you got to, I mean, when you got to entertain 25 sixth graders all day, every day, and teach them every subject, it was challenging to say the least. Uh, I, I can only, I can only imagine. So if you finish up uh, your time there, go to North Country Community College, then you're at Mary Crest. You're an assistant at the college ranks, Delaware, Tulsa, Arizona, and then end up at, at Marquette as a head coach. When you when you got to Marquette, you quickly brought that program back to national prominence, obviously, Sweet 16. What's the, I, I don't know if you can narrow it down to one thing, but what would you say in general is the, the secret, you've done this your whole career, to turning programs around it's just players i mean you you can be the greatest coach in the world if you don't have enough talent you can't win um i was fortunate and got a bunch of really tough guys in my early years when i was at marquette and we were able to develop those guys they went from being a not a very good team as freshmen to being a really good team as seniors and the process was, it was slow, um, a little bit painful at first, but the quality of guys we had and the level of talent allowed us to, to turn it around. That's, that's what it comes down to, no matter what anybody says. Well, I want to get into some deeper stuff into recruiting, but one of those guys was William Gates, who, who you recruited, who you know, obviously gain notoriety as well as you gaining notoriety from the Hoop Dreams movie. Anyone who's seen 
who's seen that classic, uh, saw you recruiting him, you know, at the national summer camp scene and then in his living room. What is it that people don't know about that movie, Hoop Dreams, that you played a part in? Well, it kind of started out as being, um, it was going to be a short movie. It was going to show what the recruiting process was like to be used for different high schools so they could enlighten, enlighten young, young people what the process was like. And they had so much good stuff, it turned into a very lengthy documentary and a very well, <clears throat> well done documentary. They did a great job with it. Both those kids, Will Gates and Arthur Agee, were exceptional kids with great families. <clears throat> it ended up being a, you know, really a, a labor of love for the people that did it, and they turned it into a, a, you know, one of the most sought after and watched documentaries of all time. How good was William Gates? William Gates, as a freshman, was supposed to be the next Isaiah. And he had uh, he had a couple different knee injuries. Uh, we just kept recruiting him. You know, even when bigger schools were still recruiting him, we stayed in there and just hung in there. And a lot of the schools backed off because of his injury, and that's how we got him. And he was a very solid college player, uh, really good college player, and a great person. So I had a, I had a, a great time coaching Will Gates. When we watched you in that in that documentary, we see you in the living room. We see you giving the pitch to the family, to him, and and that is part of the movie. The idea that you're there before the bigger schools are there, and in fact, uh, Gene Pingator, his high school coach at the time, Gates is telling him to wait and and give it some time. Um, how much was that symbolic and um, you know a, a clear example of the actual? visits that you had on on a regular basis and the work that you put in well that that they filmed it those were the actual visits those were the actual recruiting pitches you know the recruiting process nowadays is much more accelerated the home visit doesn't mean as much anymore it used to mean a lot but the bottom line is that was a that was a true life movie i mean those were the actual things that happened during the recruiting process. I think that's what makes the movie so authentic and, uh, you know, such a, such a good depiction of what goes on in college basketball. You, you've been known, anyone that's been around you for a long time, you were always known as one of the best recruiters, if not the best recruiter in the country during your time as a college coach, whether it was in as, as an assistant or as a head coach, uh, what were some of the craziest things that you did during during the recruiting process? Oh, man. I mean, you could go on and on. I mean, it used to be like nowadays I hear assistant coaches complain about the recruiting periods because they got to go out 12 days in July. I used to go on the road June 15th and come back August 1st. Never one time come back to town or go back to campus. Six straight weeks of recruiting. A lot of guys did that. And, you know, you, anything to make the process more fun. You know, you used to be able to send guys all kinds of stuff. You used to be able to, you know, send postcards, do this, have fun with it. It's a boring process, Adam. The kids are bored by it. The parents are bored by it. The coaches are bored by it. Uh, so I used to try to make it fun, you know. On Halloween, if we had guys coming in on Halloween, I'd dress up in a costume, 
to pick them up at the airport and, you know, just try to make it a little more business-like and a lot more fun. When you're at a Marquette and you're recruiting the best of the best, I mean, you're, you know, rubbing elbows with, with Bobby Knight at, at camps and uh, Coach K and all those guys. Um, you know, Marquette is a high major, but at the same time didn't have sustained success before you got there. Um, how do you sell the kids other than just fun on uh, becoming a, a Marquette player? Well, we were so bad when I took over, I could actually tell guys they could come in and play right off <laughs> and, and not be lying about it. It's um, the, the thing I had that a lot of people didn't have at that time that had established programs. I had eight jobs to offer. I mean, five starters and three guys off the bench. So we were able to get my first recruiting class was three Wisconsin kids, Jim McElvain, Damon Key, and Rob Lagerman. Wow. Who all started every single game for four years. And they were the foundation we built on. Then we added a few guys here and there from different places. But I had the option for guys to come and play right off. And it wasn't always pretty when they were freshmen. But by the time they became sophomores and then juniors and seniors, we, were, we had a really good, solid team. What was the strangest reason a kid ever gave you for not attending a school you were recruiting him to? I have one kid one time, and I'll, I'll leave his name out of this because he's a, he's a coach today. <laughs> he came and visited our place probably seven or eight times unofficially at Marquette. And then when it came down to it, he went to a different school because he said he just didn't like the city environment. Well, over two years, he'd been there eight times. <laughs> I was like, you really, you really didn't realize Milwaukee was a city? If you walked on the sidewalk there eight straight times, I mean, it was guys will, guys will make up reasons to not go to your place. That's all there is to it. I've heard countless stories about, about players who uh, decided not to go to school because someone else was already wearing their uniform number. Oh yeah. I, I mean, that, I, I, I could definitely see that. Definitely. I mean, it, it's such an inexact science and such a, a wild process. Anything can happen. Tennessee, you took a team that had won five games, ended up bringing them to the to the NIT. And at Northwestern, tell me the Bobby Knight story. Oh, it was one of those things where, you know, Bob, one of those things where we were, um, we were trying to make the NCAA tournament. We were actually 14 and six at one time and had a chance to do that. And then we lost a string of really close games, including a, in overtime loss to Indiana at home. And Bob thought that our fans, they were chanting, who's your daddy? <laughs> he took offense to that for some reason. And toward the end of the overtime, when they, he knew they were going to win, he was yelling down at me to control the crowd. And I was like, Bob, come on. I'm not in the mood for this, this shit today. I don't want to hear it. And he came down, and he, you know, typical Bob, he's going to lecture me. Well, I wasn't in the mood for a lecture. So we ended up in a choking match. But it was, it was all good. It was over with quickly, and you know everything ended up being cool. What's your relationship with uh, Coach Knight like now? You know, I don't talk to Bob at all. Uh, but if I saw him, we would get along well. I, I, I have great respect for what he did. 
we were laughing about it ten minutes after the game, so it was it was never an issue in any way. It's it's amazing the stuff that that lives on in uh, in legend. So after success at at Tennessee and success at Northwestern, again just turning programs around. Um, Northwestern, obviously, you had Evan Ashmeyer, uh, who turned into an All American player. Great college player. What was the story in terms of getting Eschmeyer? He was there when I got there. I can't take any credit for getting him. And uh, he got an injury redshirt year, so he ended up being a six-year senior and led the Big Ten and uh, scoring and rebounding was just as as good an offensive post player. He didn't care about anything except getting down in the post and going at it and they're hard to find anymore. He was just a blue-collar guy that went to work every day and was a, a more than a pleasure to coach. How difficult was it? Okay, Eschmeyer's there, but how difficult is it at a school like Northwestern with such high academic standards to uh, recruit? It, it's, it's challenging. It's, uh, you know, you're not getting the same guys in as the rest of the schools in the league. And it's... Uh, it's a little frustrating. I think Chris Collins seems to be on the right path. I thought Billy Carmody, who replaced me, did an unbelievable job there in his 12 or 13 years, whatever it was. And I think I think Chris might. I think Chris is going to be the guy to get him to the NCAA tournament. Wow. And I hope he can. But it's uh, it's a challenging job. I mean, that league is. I've said this over and over again including the NBA, it's the hardest league in the world to coach in because every place you play other than Penn State is a sold-out arena. And when you're at Northwestern, it's always a sold-out arena for the Big Ten games, but half the crowd, because of being in Chicago, are either Michigan State uh, fans that night or Ohio State or Purdue or whatever. So you always have sold-out crowds, but it doesn't always feel like a home crowd. How do you coach kids up in an environment like that? You know what? It was it was always a hostile environment. So I got guys going no matter what. And it was uh, – it's just – it's better than playing at Michigan State. It's better than playing at Michigan. But that's a tough <laughs> league, and it's full of great coaches. When you were with Marquette, you were the great Midwest coach of the year, 93 and 94, and – led the country in defensive field goal percentage. Defense was something that was always a staple. You talk about playing in the hostile environments uh, in the Big Ten. Uh, How is it that at the college level you're able to find so much success getting kids to buy in and compete at the level that you did? Well, you know what it was? When I took over, all the places I took over had won four or five games. That means you're bad. If you have any talent at all, you can win nine or ten. So we had to be good defensively. You know, there's no way you could come in there and all of a sudden say, okay, we're going to run, press, play up tempo. We just didn't have the players. So it forced us at each stop to be good defensively. Because you can make bad athletes and bad players good defenders but you can't make bad athletes and bad players good offensive players. That's talent and that's skill. But you can force them to take charges and 
play like a group and play hard, and that's that's the best way to turn around programs in my estimation. When do you realize how deep into the season do you realize when a team is really buying into what it is that you're you're pushing? Uh, usually find out when conference play starts, especially when you play on the road in conference play, no matter what league you're in. If you're going on the road and you're able to stay in games till the end and have a chance to win them in the last two minutes, that's when you know your team is is really doing what you you need to do to try to win those games. And I've said this many times, and you're rebuilding. All you want to do is get to the last two minutes with a chance to win. And then, you know, hopefully you can make a play or make a defensive stop when it counts, get a big rebound. But just getting to those last two minutes is – that's a fight when you when you don't have great talent. After your college coaching stretch there, you decide to go to a place where there is great talent in the NBA. You became an assistant coach under uh, under Jeff Van Gundy with the New York Knicks. Uh, why did you make the jump to the league? You know, it's uh, I, I I think NBA basketball is you know, without question, the highest level of talent. And I wanted to coach the highest level players. And a lot of people don't realize they think NBA coaches just roll the ball out. It's the highest level of coaching also. You make more decisions in two NBA games than you probably make in an entire college season. And, you know, you have to have a great staff in the NBA. You have to have four or five really good basketball people. And all you do is basketball. And that was, at the time, enticing to me. It's something I wanted to do. And Jeff gave me an opportunity to do it and learn the league. And, you know, I, I enjoyed it for, for a long period of time. What did you learn that first year? I learned just how good a coach you have to be to be in the NBA. Jeff Van Gundy, no matter what it, anybody would ever think of Jeff, he is a fantastic coach. Unbelievable basketball mind. And I learned, you know, from two of the best, he and Rick Carlisle were my first two assistant coaching jobs. And it was uh, it was a great education for me in a lot of ways. You talk about the decisions that you have to make over the course of an NBA game. What are some decisions that are made that I think the average fan wouldn't be privy to? Well, just, just getting matchups offensively and defensively. You know, it becomes a, a chess match. Um uh, like you, you got to realize if they've put a guy in the game that the that your two guard can't guard, you need to make a change. Or you may be the one that says, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a change at my three spot because we're gonna have a mismatch in the post." And then if you have a mismatch in the post, the other coach has to decide: Are we gonna double that? Are we gonna play it straight up? Are we gonna front the post? I mean, there's so many games within the game that go on in NBA basketball that people never realize. Considering that's the case and understanding how much is involved with coaching at the NBA level, how come it's so different from coaching in college? Well, the games are – it's two totally different games. It's two totally different um, – I mean, I laugh when I when I see college players talking about being in the NBA. They have no clue what they're getting into. None. Zero. Not one bit. And then 
Yeah, the biggest difference in coaching in college and in the NBA, in college, as a coach, you're the number one person in the organization. And I can jump up if guys aren't running back and say, get your ass back. Mm-hmm. In the NBA, you're going to be like, okay, Jerry, can you do us a favor and run back the next three or four times? Because <laughs> we're getting in foul trouble. It's how you deal with the players and communicate with them is different. And when it gets right down to it, the head coach, with few exceptions like Popovich or Pat Riley or Phil Jackson, the head coach is automatically the seventh most important person in the organization in the NBA. you got the owner, the president, the GM, and the top three players are all more important than the head coach. Wow. Just a different, a different structure, a different hierarchy, all that. How do you earn respect? How, go, go ahead. The best way to get respect from NBA players mm-hmm. is work hard because they respect hard work. And they're much harder working than most people think. And then you got to know what you're talking about. If you get up in front of the team and you don't know, <laughs> excuse me, you don't know what you're talking about, these guys know right off. And then you've lost all credibility with them in any way. Any examples of uh, situations you were in early on in your career in which uh, you felt like you had to earn the respect of a player? Well, when I was in Detroit, Rick Carlisle let me do the defense. I never went into a practice or a discussion with the team without having everything written down word for word. And that was every day. Because I so, surely uh, didn't want to make a mistake and lose the respect to guys like Ben Wallace, Cliff Robinson. Because once you lose it, you never get it back. So, so every dealing with these guys from a practice perspective, uh, conversation. I wrote down everything. Wow. I, I rehearsed it the night before. <laughs> I mean, I I just I didn't I didn't play in the NBA, so I had to earn their respect somehow. I was a Division Three player that played in Canada. And if I didn't know my stuff, there's no way I could have communicated with them. And I'm sure having the the, the backing of Van Gundy and Carlisle certainly helped because those guys have had so much respect for you. Yeah, because those um, guys have, you know, mucho, mucho respect. So, so you, you are with the Knicks, you're with the Pistons, then you get a head coaching job with the Raptors – Interesting, interesting stretch with the Raptors. Uh, there's just some different names on this team that I don't think people really remember from some of those early 2000s Raptors teams. Antonio Davis, Chris Bosh, Alvin Williams, Jalen Rose, and of course, Vince Carter. Tell me when you first start as an NBA head coach, the dream is realized. What was that first stretch like for you? You know, they'd only won, I think they won 22 or 23 games the year before. And it was a uh, complete, had to, had to change the culture type atmosphere. We had to be a defensive team. Uh, we went through a major trade about 14 or 15 games in when we traded Antonio Davis and Jerome Williams and a bunch of guys and got Jalen Rose back. Uh, Alvin Williams got hurt in the first 10 games out for the year. Chris Bosch was a rookie, you know, and wasn't 
obviously Chris Bosch of today. So it was a, there was a lot of, you know, juggling. And we were in position right at the end to make the playoffs, and then Jalen Rose broke, broke his arm in a <clears throat> double overtime game at Golden State, was out for 19 games, and we ended up not making the playoffs, and I got fired. And it's, uh, you know, injuries play such a big part, especially when you have a small margin for error at the NBA level. But Toronto is a great franchise, great city to live in. I actually met my wife when I was there, so that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was uh, there were a lot of challenges in the job, and unfortunately, it didn't work out past one year. What about being a head coach in the NBA is something that that fans, uh, other than what you had mentioned about just coaching in the NBA, about being a head coach in the NBA is uh, something fans don't realize. Nobody realizes how much you have to talk to the media and meet with the players. Uh, for instance, like on a, on a game day, you talk to the media before and after shoot around, before the game, after the game. Uh, you know, you're constantly answering a you know a group of questions that you know are asked over and over and over again, day in day out, and then. With the amount of timeouts you have in the NBA, as a coach, you've got to give those guys something 14 times a game, minimum. And they're looking at you as the head coach. They're coming into that timeout, and they want something. They want to take something out of that timeout that they can use to do a better job on one end of the court or the other. So you have to, as a head coach, be you know, conscious of having a great staff, managing your staff and then being able to give these guys something down the stretch of games that help them try to win. And you can't rehearse those 14 different occasions. Those aren't rehearsed. No, there's no rehearsing on that one. None. In talking to some NBA coaches through the years, the one thing that's always shocked me, we assume all these NBA players are, are grown men uh, because they're making millions and millions of dollars and, uh, and because they're, gigantic in a lot of cases. Can you think back to any instances where you couldn't believe the guys at that age playing in the NBA at that point you had been coaching as a, you know, you'd been an assistant for a number of years, but any stories in which you recall guys, you couldn't believe they were acting the way that they were. You know, for the most part, NBA players are much easier to coach than college players Hmm. because they're professionals. College players are all trying to make it. They all got their little posses, their parents, uh, their girlfriends, everybody telling them how great they are. You should be in the league and all this. I found NBA players were much easier to coach. Um, Now, some of the things that they did in terms of preparation for games and stuff like that would be like, you know, you can't stay out half the night and play great in a noon game. It's 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 hard to do that. And there was, you know, there's some of that goes on in a long season. And just the fact sometimes that, you know, guys have an opinion of themselves because they're all their own corporation. They have an opinion of themselves that's much higher than their abilities oftentimes. And it's hard to, you know, you got, I guess you got to keep it real with them. Tell them the truth without wounding their egos. So that part of it was, 
a little bit of a challenge because sometimes their vision of their abilities is not the same as yours and it's not the same as reality and that's that's a little bit part of the immaturity that comes with being a player that wants to be better than he really is instead of accepting who they are uh a guy that extremely talented but has been sort of an enigma around NBA circles for just years and years is Vince Carter. You got to see him every day in, in practice and all. Uh, just how talented was Vince Carter at that time, and, and what was it like to coach him? Vince is the most gifted, talented player I was ever around, by far. No one knows how talented Vince Carter was. Um. I'm not sure Vince ever really loved basketball the way fans loved him. Uh, I, Vince was a guy that, I mean, the first the first game I ever coached, we played New Jersey, who had gone to the finals two years in a row. The guy scores 39 points, gets 17 rebounds, and we beat him. And we go to him 13 straight times down the stretch to win a one-point game. He could do amazing things, but it was always whether basketball was the most important thing in Vince's life. And, uh, you know, he's had a string of injuries at different times, but I got to give the guy credit. He's still playing now. He's still a contributor. He's had a way better career than people want to give him credit for. He just never was in a situation where he was able to, you know, become the Jordan-like type guy. He didn't have that inside him like Jordan does or LeBron to take your, your skill level to the point of just willing yourself to win 55, 60 games every year. He just didn't have that. Any other guys just that you can think of that were supremely talented that you coached at any point in your career that were sort of the same way that you were almost shocked that they didn't become ultra superstars maybe? You know, not really. You know, the NBA is pretty much, a, if you think about it, there's probably 30 stars in the league, 35, maybe 40, whatever. And the rest of the guys are kind of all interchangeable. You know, and attitude-wise, 30% of the guys you'd always want on your team, about 20% you'd never want on your team. <laughs> and the group in between goes, whatever the flow of the team is. So it's, you know, people talk about, you know, like free agency's just been a, a major league thing. If you look at it in free agency, there's probably two or three guys that are going to make a huge impact on the team they go to. And aside from that, they're all regular players that are very interchangeable. So it's hard to be around the really, really, really talented guys oftentimes because there's not that many of them. Right. What are they looking for in a coach, those supreme superstars? You know, they want to be pushed. The really good guys want to be pushed. Like you look at San Antonio, I think over the years, Pop has done a fabulous job of having character guys on his team and then pushing them to a limit and communicating with them to a limit that have made them better and better players and a better and better team. But Pop has the luxury that a lot of guys don't have when they go to the league. He's also the president of the team. 
and been there forever. He's one of the important guys in that franchise. Not very often is a coach one of those important guys. Right, the makes sense. An interchangeable piece to many owners. After the Raptors situation comes to a close, you end up as a an assistant with the Pacers. You're there the night of the malice at the palace, which must have been even a more unique experience for you because obviously it was when the the Pacers got into the brawl with the Pistons, Ron Artest and Steven Jackson ended up in the stands, Jermaine O'Neal throwing punches, all that chaos. But you had been a part of the Pistons organization, obviously, uh, under Rick Carlisle at that time. So, so for you individually, what, what do you recollect about, about your night, uh, November 19th, 2004? To me, that was just a sad night for everybody involved. That's the one thing I remember being on the bus after the game and our security guys telling us everybody lay down in the seats because they're going to be throwing bricks at the bus. And I mean, it was, it was just really sad at them that, that it had to come down that way. And it's, uh, <clears throat> it's one of the shames in sport that that night happened. And it was chaotic to say the least. Uh, it was it was just it was a terrible black eye for the NBA and for the guys involved, and it was unfortunate that you know in, in many ways Ron Artest, for instance, it shaped everybody's view of him for a long time in the NBA, and it was uh, it's unfortunate it happened. It was unfortunate for both franchises. And it was really unfortunate for a lot of the individuals that were involved. Because most of those guys, like people think Steven Jackson's kind of crazy and a wacko and all that. But Steven mm-hmm. Jackson's a good guy and a basketball guy. In his mind, he was supporting his teammate when he went into the stands. But the way that it comes out, you know, it was, it was just, just a bad, bad evening for everybody. Did you feel really threatened that night while uh, things were going on in the arena? I didn't really, no. You know, it was it was out of control. Obviously, fans were coming on the court. What we were all trying to do as coaches is get our guys mm-hmm. off the court and into the locker room. And I'm telling you, going through the tunnel, coming off the court, dragging guys off and doing stuff like that was – you know, you were getting everything thrown at you, popcorn, soda, water, beer, everything. But, you know, we just wanted to get those guys off the court so nobody got hurt, try to avoid as many suspensions as you could. But I didn't really feel threatened in any way. I don't know why. It just, you know, when I was in the middle of it, it didn't seem like that big a deal. Then I watched it on TV later that night. I was like, oh, my goodness, this doesn't look good. I was going to ask you when you realized how how bad everything really was. You know, I knew even from the the first thing when Ronnie was laying on the scores table and he got hit with the beer, mm-hmm. I knew as soon as he got away from us and got into the stands, it was going to be bad. But then, you know, everything was happening, so I didn't even think about it. And then we flew back home late that night. I remember sitting and watching it 
you know, the highlights, I was like, oh, boy, this is bad. <laughs> you know, and by the time we got to the, you know, the practice court in the morning, the NBA already had their security and everybody in there, and they were suspending guys. So it was, you know, it it, it basically turned a season where we thought we could win the championship into one where, you know, we struggled to make the playoffs because, I mean, Rick Carlisle did a fantastic job with that team that year. One of the best in the history of the NBA because between suspensions and injuries and the whole malice in the palace thing, it was it was a hard situation to manage. A Hall of Fame job managing it. He did a great job. Yeah, it, the, the two things that really seem to stand out for me are when you go back and look at video that whole incident it's crazy because it seems like it was almost the perfect storm um every little piece sort of had to happen the tension between the two teams it was just enough of a big lead there were injuries so uh starters would have been taken out that were still in the game and all that kind of stuff so and then the other part that's wild is just what happened to the to the pacers franchise at that point and yeah, I mean, Carlisle's coaching job was just remarkable. Fantastic job. I mean, for a single season, maybe the best season ever any coach put together. Because it was, you know, you had to be there to know the number of challenges that were there every day with guys being suspended, unsuspended, hurt. You know, it was it was challenging to say the least. And we ended up making the best of it, but we went into that year and into that game in particular when we won at Detroit by a large margin. We felt like we had a chance to win the NBA championship, and that that all came apart that night. You talk about how it hurt the reputation of Ron Artest. It probably marred it forever, which is a great shame because it's easy to forget how great and unique of a talent Artest really, really yep. was. Uh, what was it like to coach him? That was challenging, especially at that time in his career. Ronnie has, uh, he's a unique personality. He's a challenging guy to coach. Um, he's a challenging guy to play with, even on the best of days. But he does want to win. He does play exceptionally hard. He's very talented. So it was, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you you just try to get him better every day, and really try to keep him keep himself from hurting himself in terms of when you were coaching him and things he would say and do. It's uh, you know, he's a he's a unique individual to say the least. Had you ever been around uh, a basketball player? Forget the mindset for a moment. Just the the type of player he was. Was there anyone that was like him that you ever coached before? Uh, not really, because you know Ronnie was he was a great defender on the ball. He was a great post-up player for his size, exceedingly strong and tough. Would sacrifice his body for the game and to win. And uh, you know he was a rare individual and a uh, and a very 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 good player. What was the happiest you ever were coaching? You know, I don't know. I, I've I've enjoyed everywhere I've coached, to be honest with you. I really enjoyed our two years I was with the Pistons. We had a a group of guys, Cliff Robinson, Corliss Williamson, Mike Curry, Ben Wallace, 
Chauncey Billups, Tayshawn Prince, Rip Hamilton. Those guys practice like college teams every day. And they always, always played hard. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what was going on, they played as a group, and they were fun to coach. That was a really fun experience dealing with those guys because they were great professionals that played with college-type enthusiasm even during the regular season. So that was a fun group to be around. When you're when you're moving up the ranks, you know, as a high school coach and then JUCO and, you know, you just keep moving up, college and then high major and then NBA assistant, NBA head coach. Is there a point where during it, not now, but but at the time when you ever said, I, I can't believe that I'm here, I can't believe that I've realized all these dreams? I was like that when I was a high school coach. I mean, I, when I was a high school coach, I was like, this is awesome. I'm getting to coach a high school team. And then I felt the same way in junior college. And I, I feel very blessed to have had all the opportunities the coaching gave me and live my life in coaching circles for 35 years. Uh, it's been a, for me, I had a, it was a great privilege to coach at any level, much less have the opportunity to coach at every level in every position. It was something I enjoyed tremendously, and oftentimes now I miss. Who's your favorite person in the coaching profession? My favorite person in the coaching profession? Mm-hmm. Hmm, that's a hard one. Yeah, I guess one of my favorite guys that I've ever been around is Bob Huggins. Because Bob tells it like it is. He's his own man. I have great respect for many, many, many people in the coaching profession. But I always, I spent a lot of time with Bob when I was coaching. And in the summertime, we were out on the trail recruiting and stuff like that. I just liked him a lot as a person. I enjoyed his company. He's just a kind of a unique guy that, you know, is a great coach. In my mind, a Hall of Fame coach. Mm-hmm. I just enjoyed being around him. He was fun. It always seems like your teams played like his teams played. Yeah, we tried to play. You know, we valued the same things. Mm-hmm. Valued hard play, sharing the ball, being together, never giving in, those kind of things. Those are important to to both of us. Who is the most important person in guiding your coaching career? Uh, boy, that's a, that's a tough one. Now, really – I worked for Lute as an assistant, but Lute never really, you know, he wasn't, he was doing his own thing. So I kind of guided my own career. That's probably why I made some mistakes along the way, but, (laughs) you know, there's a a few guys I would bounce things off. I really respect Jeff Van Gundy, and I value his opinion on many, many things. I really didn't have a, quote, mentor, per se. You know, I value Rick Carlisle's opinion. You know, he's a he has a great feel for the profession. But there wasn't anybody that, you know, stood out as a guy that, quote, mentored me. I just, for whatever reason, that didn't happen. If you were talking to a young coach now and they really wanted to learn all about the game, 
how would you propose they go about doing so? Well, I always tell young coaches this. you got to be willing to work for nothing and then probably take a pay cut as you try <laughs> to move up. But try to get in the best basketball situation you can where you can learn the most. And there's not enough anymore of young coaches. You know, I, I, used, I can't tell you how many videotapes I watched of different coaches practices and games and you know I, I would just tell them you know be happy whatever job you've got do the best job you can then the next job will come everybody wants to you know be the head coach right off you got to pay your dues a little bit everybody's got a different journey some guys are great players that stay at the school they played at and get a start that way you know some guys you know know somebody that got them a job and some guys went through the whole ranks like I did from high school all the way to the NBA. Everybody's got a different journey. Just keep in mind that hard work and being true to yourself is going to be the most important thing in coaching. Who was the most brilliant coaching mind you've ever been around? Jeff Van Gundy. As an overall coach, he was, you know, unmatched. Rick Carlisle is a fan, unbelievably fantastic offensive mind. Um, so I, you know, I've been around good coaches, good guys. Those two guys, in terms of just knowledge, are unmatched. And you know, if if you're having somebody coach a game for your life, I'd want one of those two guys coaching for my life because those guys, their preparation level, their basketball skills, their knowledge of the game is unmatched. Who's a recruit that got away from you? Recruit that got away from me? Ron Mercer when I was at Tennessee. Ended up going to Kentucky in the end. Uh, we still rec- were able to recruit really good players. And that's that's the one job I always say I should have stayed at instead of leaving. Because we'd gone through all the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Had gotten to the NIT from four wins. Had gotten good players. And then I I always tell everybody, I, admit, I acted like an immature brat. Got in a uh, pissing match with the AD, Doug Dickey, who actually – pretty good guy and uh left and went to Northwestern. That was that was the only only regret I would have in coaching is that move right there. I didn't stay and finish a job. For those of us on the outside, moving around and trying to move up and the dogfight that you're in, how difficult it I mean you're you're battling there day to day and having to deal with ADs and all the uh, the boosters and all those kinds of things that probably are rubbing you the wrong way, and all of a sudden you get some some other schools that are reaching out to you or your agent and saying, "Hey, we'd love to have you. We value you so much." You know how how difficult is it to balance your current situation, which probably always has some friction at some level, uh, with that that prettier job that's uh, the grass is always greener, as they say. You know, it's. 
I think you learn with experience. The grass is the same color everywhere you go. It may seem greener at the time. Every job has its own set of problems. Every job has its own set of negatives. Every job has its own set of positives. And it becomes, you know, like I said, if I had to do it over at Tennessee, I would have stayed and made a run and getting to the Final Four, doing all those things. But you become impatient sometimes. And for whatever reasons, people at different levels make different moves. You're seeing coaches stay places a lot longer now, turn down jobs more often, because there's there's not a – the grass is not always greener. It just may seem it from the lawn you're standing in, but it's not. <laughs> What's a game you wish you could coach again? Game I wish I could coach again? Hmm. It's a pretty good one. Uh, my second year at USC, we played VCU. I'd like to coach that game again. And I, you know, that's the year they went to the final four. They had a really good team. Mm -hmm. I wish I could have made our guys understand that they were, I I only, I did a great job. Like I knew they were good. I watched them on film. I was like, these guys are damn good. They got good players. They're well coached. I think everybody thought we should win that game because we were USC and they were VCU. And I I didn't spend enough time convincing our guys that this was a really good team. So I'd like to do that one over. What about the game you're most proud of in your career? I don't know. Um, I'll tell you a really – proud moment for me is when I was at Detroit as an assistant and we won a game six at Philly in overtime to get past that second round. That was a very rewarding win. Hard fought. Iverson was a great player. They had a great team. I thought that was, you know, a game that really stood out to me as this is what we've worked for. This is why we were tough. This is why we were the best defensive team. So we could come on the road and win this game. And how about any major changes you would make to the college game or the NBA game if you were in charge? Uh, I would cut out all these timeouts. In college especially. I mean, this, this stuff fouling and taking time out down 17 with 30 seconds left to let everybody know we're still playing hard. I I would take in college, I would say each coach has got one timeout. You get a timeout every four minutes. Each coach has one timeout. That's it. And I would put in the charge circle from the NBA in college, which I think they're going to try I guess in a couple instances. And I would have the ball be able to be advanced in the last two minutes of a game. If you score a basket with two seconds left in college now, game's over. Mm-hmm. You got to go full court in two seconds, unless it's a hail mary heave. You got no chance. The NBA itself, you know, it's it's a more pure game. I'd like to see. I'd like to see the number of fouls that guys can get go up. 
because I want to see the best players playing. I like to see it be seven fouls before you foul out in the NBA. But the NBA is a more pure game. The college game needs a little retooling. Last question for you. When you're watching games at home, uh, what kinds of things are you looking at that, you know, the rest of us probably aren't seeing or looking for? You know, like especially with college, I try to watch the benches to see how players are reacting that come out of games and stuff like that. Um, one thing that gets me, especially in college, is all these assistants up running around all the time when the camera's on. <laughs> I think it's total horse shit. Sit down and let the head coach coach the team. When you're the head coach, you can stand up. But I watch in the NBA, especially, I watch, you know, matchup adjustments, you know, who are they putting in that they're going to go to now? Uh, what plays do they run for certain guys? I try to watch that. And that's where you see some, some real coaching going on in the NBA level. You feel like you're still learning as a coach? Absolutely. I learn every day as a coach. I talk to some, not many coaches anymore, because when you're out, you're out. But the guys I talk to, I spend a lot of time with you know, four or five different guys that I've stayed in touch with and talked basketball with a lot. I try to learn from them. I try to learn from watching games on TV. When we're in the studio, it's a great learning experience for me. So it's, I'm never going to quit learning this game. Well, K.O., you, uh, you're an all-time great. Well, uh, outstanding, outstanding basketball mind. The things you've done over the years just – awesome and and now to see you take it and and bring your wealth of knowledge as well as your your uh candor to uh the tv screen is is awesome people that haven't seen so far are in for a treat um you're a great broadcaster and uh i'm glad i can call you a friend so i appreciate you jumping on with me all right man thank you and uh congratulations on your upcoming nuptial what do they call it new nuptials there you go Yeah. Perfect. I hope you don't have to do it three times like I did to get it right. (laughs) Yeah, I'll have to ask you about that next time. All right, man. Thanks, Adam. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on. So there you have it. Kevin O'Neill, a misunderstood coach in in many ways, uh, but I mean every word I say. You you heard it there. He's, He's a passionate guy. He's a thoughtful guy. So many friends in the coaching community speak so highly of him. Uh, and he's been around so many huge basketball moments, whether it was the malice at, at the palace. And we think of that as the crazy moment when we all jumped up and pointed at the TV screen, screaming, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Look what Jermaine O'Neal just did. And you know, we forget that these were people's lives that were forever changed and, you know, mistakes were made. But just looking back at the, at the resurrections that he was – a major part of whether it was at Marquette, whether it's at Tennessee through the years were really shocking. And then, you know, as an assistant coach, the work that he put in and just guys like that, you think about there's, there's a handful of really storied basketball coaches that didn't get the same notoriety as the coach K's and the the Bobby Knights and, you know, the Lute Olsons and, 
And uh, Kevin O'Neill has impacted a lot of people in the basketball world, and he's certainly a special and unique individual. So we really appreciate KO for jumping on. You have been listening to the Great Point Podcast. Yes, KO referred to getting married. Looking forward to uh, spending some time with Kate. Thank her for everything that she has done for me and and for this podcast. So I guess uh, that'll do it for the Great Point Podcast. You can always catch us on Twitter at Great Point Pod, and you can catch me, Adam Stanko, at Naismith Lives. Thanks for listening. <laughs>